Hi, I'm Corey Feldman with the Society for Healthcare Innovation, uh, here with Dr. Patrick Kim from the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Kim. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Corey. And uh, so, Dr. Kim, what I think we'd like to hear a little bit about is uh, what your role is in general, kind of what your life looks like as a trauma surgeon, and then we'll move a little bit more into um, how you guys are preparing for the pandemic moving towards Philadelphia. So um, just kick it off and let us know kind of what your, what your life looks like as a trauma surgeon at Penn. Okay. So um, I'm an attending surgeon um, at Penn Medicine in the Division of Trauma Surgery, uh, Critical Care, and Emergency General Surgery. Um, I'm the Division Vice Chief, um, but um, my clinical practice spans all three of those domains. Uh, I do uh, trauma surgery. Um, I spend some time in the uh, surgical ICU. And um, I take call for emergency general surgery, uh, which is um, emergencies like appendicitis, uh, gallbladder operations, um, severe soft tissue infections, and so forth. Um, our trauma center is uh, a level one trauma center. We see about 2,700 patients a year. Um, and um, uh, we have a very busy critical care service and a very busy emergency general surgery service as well. We probably do over 1,200 cases a year um, emergently. Wow. And um, as you think about COVID-19, um, what preparations are you guys beginning to take? You know, obviously, uh, traumas don't stop just because there's a pandemic happening, right? And so um, what measures are you guys taking to keep uh, the, the ED safe, to keep yourself safe, and to kind of prepare for the influx that you guys are, are expecting? Um, yes, Corey, this is, um, as you know, unprecedented. Um, you know, trauma centers in general are prepared around the clock, 24-7, to deal with um, uh, sporadic incidents of trauma and violence um, and um, also mass casualty incidents. Uh, and we uh, do preparations um, uh, to um, be ready for um, incidents where a lot of patients are coming all at once. Uh, and um, hospitals in general prepare for uh, disasters. Um, but um, really, this is uh, something that's completely different. Uh, it's not something that we've ever done on this scale before, which is uh, basically to uh, um, prepare the hospital by clearing out any elective surgeries. Um, we have um, basically expedited discharge of any patients that um, uh, who could possibly be discharged safely. Um, and uh, as a trauma center, we are preparing by uh, practicing, uh, seeing COVID-positive patients in the trauma bay and uh, 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 simulating their care uh, throughout the hospital. Um, we have um, uh, maintained our manpower, um, our availability 24-7, um, while um, many parts of the hospital, for, uh, for example, elective surgery, have been curtailed. Uh, we're really trying to free up the capacity uh, to deal with this. Um, but um, really, in general, we're um, we're still available to deal with traumas, whether or not uh, the patient is um, a COVID patient. Got it. And so are you guys preparing for contingencies where a patient, you know, patient comes in and they have a trauma of some sort, but they might also have COVID? Like, how are you, are you guys designating certain entrances for folks that are um, showing symptoms versus those that are not? Well, as of right now, uh, they're going to come through the same area uh, through the trauma bay, and we're going to treat them uh, just the same because, in general, we use um, uh, a high degree of personal protective equipment anyway for every trauma patient uh, because we don't know um, what their uh, medical history is, and um, we actually generally practice um, uh, these precautions for everybody. Uh, so this 
uh, is not a huge change in the way that we prepare. For example, um, we do um, gown, uh, hat, mask, gloves, uh, eye protection for everybody. Um, and now we use a standard surgical mask uh, and regular eye protection. Uh, so uh, those things are still um, appropriate uh, for patients that have not been confirmed to be COVID positive. So um, if we uh, are doing our assessments and uh, we take a history from the patient and find out that they do have some risk factors, uh, then we switch over to a um, higher degree of personal protection, uh, including the N95, for example. Uh, and um, if we have to do a procedure such as um, oral tracheal intubation or a surgical airway, um, you know, the, um, the airway teams are uh, appropriately trained in the use of PAPR, uh, you know, the positive airway pressure devices, uh, or, um, uh, and also to minimize the amount of time uh, that there's any possibility of aerosolization. Um, so in general, we're, um, we're prepared for uh, any type of a patient, uh, whatever their uh, risk is. Um, and at the same time, this is completely new. Uh, so we're being very, very careful. So as I was watching these videos coming out of Italy, you're seeing a lot of these doctors, you know, they closed down post-acute clinics, pulled doctors from post-acute into the, uh, you know, anyone that could treat is treating. Um, you know, are there um, any takeaways that you've uh, or things that you've learned over the years working as a trauma surgeon that you think might be relevant to folks who are now going to find themselves in this situation for potentially the first time? Um, well, Corey, I think that, um, you know, the important thing is the uh, preparation. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things that um, we're always uh, teaching to our trainees, the surgical residents, emergency medicine residents, and uh, residents in other uh, specialties is really um, – uh, just going through the drill almost every opportunity possible uh, and um, really giving people um, uh, the education uh, if they haven't been there personally to learn from an experience and, and watch uh, you know the experience team do it then um, you know we have conferences every day where we review um, the uh, procedures uh, the best practices uh, and really try to enforce uh, the readiness um, so uh, in some sense, um, you know, I feel like uh, that's uh, that's the culture of um, trauma centers uh, and trauma teams, uh, which is to uh, practice everything and learn from every possible opportunity and keep uh, teaching continuously. Um, I think that some of the things that we've learned um, from uh, other cities and countries uh, where they're ahead of us, uh, unfortunately, is that um, really it. it um, the, the preparation that we do as a team is uh, necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, you know, we're finding that uh, there's a lot of shortages of supplies, uh, crucial equipment. And um, even though, um, you know, we feel like uh, we were ready uh, in many ways, I think in that crucial aspect, um, you know, we're a little bit behind uh, because um, to be honest, you probably know this, but many hospitals, especially academic medical centers are running at full capacity every day. And so we, um, we really drill the process on the um, provider side of things, but in terms of uh, where to put uh, patients, you know, once, once they require admission uh, and uh, having a surplus of supplies to meet the demand, uh, you know, I think that um, we have a learning opportunity here. Yeah, and I mean, I just saw on the news that um, New York has basically tapped the Javits Center as a makeshift hospital 
Um, and I know New York is probably significantly further ahead in terms of the number of infected folks in Philadelphia, um, but are, is the University of Pennsylvania Health System uh, giving thought to where this surplus uh, might end up? Um, yeah, we've given it a lot of thought. Um, you know, Penn Medicine is um, six hospitals, uh, three of which are in downtown Philadelphia, and um, you know, one of which is in New Jersey, um, uh, in Princeton. And um, we're really, um, uh, we've had some time to think and plan uh, about um, uh, the surge capacity, about patients, um, you know, uh, filling up the ICUs, and then. Uh, needing to spill over into other patient carriers that are not traditionally used um, around the clock. Uh, so beyond the general med surge floors, uh, areas such as the operating rooms, um, the uh, PACUs, in other words, the post-anesthesia units, um, and uh, other um, intervention uh, or procedure rooms, uh, anywhere where um, you know we can bring the ICU um, skills and the equipment, uh, you know, the ventilators. Um, the uh, IV infusion pumps, and uh, most importantly, the, the bedside nurses, advanced practice providers, and uh, physicians. So, um, you know, we have some contingency plans, uh, and um, uh, thankfully, we haven't uh, maxed out our capacity um, at all um, at uh, most of the hospitals. Uh, so, um, you know, I think we're uh, in a position, um, you know, to be ready for the initial influx, and uh, I think it's difficult for us to... Uh, uh, predict today um, exactly how much of the surge capacity um, is going to be used and, and or how quickly it's going to be overwhelmed, uh, to be honest. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, we are both in this Master of Healthcare Innovation program together. And, you know, while obviously a lot of tragedy uh, has resulted already from this pandemic and, and unfortunately will continue to, um, it seems that there has been some positive movement in the sense that telehealth has been thrust forward uh, in a real and meaningful way. Um, for you, um, what do you see as kind of some of the takeaways from this experience that might be uh, positive? That's a great question. Um, well, I think, first of all, uh, to address the um, uh, specific issue of telemedicine, um, you know, uh, this is probably the worst way uh, to um, uh, expand the use of telemedicine in healthcare. Um, and uh, I think uh, a lot of providers have uh, wished for a, a great um, straightforward telemedicine solution. Uh, and I think now um, we don't have a choice. So, um, you know, part of clearing out the hospital and part of keeping people away from the uh, hospital campuses is really to switch almost instantly to telemedicine for any visit, um, uh, you know, a, a a post-operative visit that's straightforward um, or an uncomplicated problem. So in that sense, I, I guess um, this is one way to uh, move forward, um, which is basically um, to eliminate uh, any other choice. Um, and um, so I'm hopeful that that'll be a sustain, sustainable change. Um, I will be, um, I'm impressed uh, how quickly, um, you know, we've, um, uh, you know, we, we've, We've been given the clearance uh, from a um, licensing standpoint uh, to um, practice telemedicine. We've been uh, granted emergency privileges to uh, take care of patients across state lines with telemedicine. So all those things I think are gonna be very helpful, um, again, from a not just from a patient care, but a public health standpoint. Um, so um, I'm encouraged by that. And I hope that um, this, um, I hope that we can learn some uh, longer term lessons 
about um, the role of telemedicine. Um, the broader question um, of um, you know what other lessons we can learn from this, uh, I, I just I, I'm um, uh, impressed uh, by uh, my uh, colleagues and peers' uh, uh, passion and creativity. Um, I think that um, this is going to have some lasting impact um, in terms of our supply chain, in terms of the way that we think about um, uh, ramping up, you know, delivering um, surge capacity, uh, both with um, human resources and equipment. Um, I think that, um, and, and obviously I think we're gonna innovate very quickly in terms of uh, preventing something like this from happening again. It, it concerns me a little bit, I mean, because this is the first time any of us have been through this, um, you know, we look back to the past with the Spanish flu from a century ago and other, um, the less, um, uh, the more predictable seasonal flus and so forth. You know, we're always trying to draw lessons from that. But I think that, you know, um, uh, I, I think that we won't be as complacent uh, next time and, and not not as skeptical about things happening around the world. I think that, um, you know, we'll, um, you know, from this we'll pay more attention. And I think that, you um, I think that there'll be a clear uh, mandate for uh, objectivity and transparency uh, in information, uh, and uh, hopefully um, we won't be afraid of the truth. I mean, you know, I'm inundated with, um, you know, um, the, uh, the the breadth uh, of studies and information and um, sharing of knowledge, uh, uh, sharing of, um, you know, offering to help. Um, all these things are very impressive. I mean. You know, the medical students, um, you know, we, we have uh, ended their medical school rotations for the year prematurely uh, just to keep them away. But, you know, it's a they're, they're, they got pent up passion and, um, you know, energy. And so I think that's great. Uh, I think that everyone um, that I've talked to, um, you know, they're they want to be safe, but they want to help. And so uh, I think all those things are encouraging. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a nice segue. Um, I just want to let you know how grateful and humble we are by all of the hard work that you guys are putting in as clinicians to keep us safe. So, so thank you for that. Um, well, thank you for those kind words. Um, you know, um, uh, it's the sort of thing where we always, um, you know, we kind of do what we do uh, regardless of uh, any feedback, but um, everyone likes to hear positive feedback. So I appreciate that. Um, we are the Society for Healthcare Innovation. Uh, we were started out of Penn's um, Master of Healthcare Innovation program. And we are really looking to connect with folks who are bringing innovative solutions, either from a clinical perspective or technological perspective, to deal with the pandemic. So if that's you or someone you know, please reach out to us. You can find us at shci.org, or you can find us on our YouTube channel, which is the Society for Healthcare Innovation. Thanks so much, and have a great night.